This morning I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, so please bow your heads and pray with me. Father, as we prepare for this morning's message, as we listen to your word from Genesis 17, we ask that you would prepare our hearts, that the Holy Spirit might teach us so that we would understand what your word means, the significance of it, and the implications for our redemption and for the Christian life. Lord, we want to also just take a minute to pray for something that, something we don't always do, but it's appropriate this Sunday. We want to pray, Lord, for that Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina that has been all over the news with the shooting that has taken so many lives, including their pastor. Lord, we don't, we don't have words to, to, be, to even begin to describe and pray to you with this awful situation. We know, Lord, that many of the families are grieving. We know that a, that a church has lost their pastor. And Lord, we, we see just the, the evil that exists in our world. We pray, Lord, we pray that they would trust in you during this very difficult time, that they would rely upon you, that you would be their shepherd, their chief shepherd. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm glad we are together again this morning as we work through the book of Genesis and we come to Genesis 17. I hope, I hope this is true for you, that as we are approaching, getting close at least, to um, kind of the, the core of this book, that you are beginning to understand the book of Genesis in a way that you didn't before. And that you are seeing how our great God is at work in redemptive history to bring about his plan of salvation. Today we continue this pilgrimage side by side with Abraham. And we come once again to a crucial passage in the narrative. In fact, it's so crucial that I'm going to actually spend two sermons on Genesis 17, something we don't usually do, but I want to spend two sermons on this chapter. The first sermon this morning, we are going to be unpacking the narrative, and next week when we come back, we are going to spend a second sermon explaining its significance across the rest of the story of the Bible with a particular focus on the circumcision of the heart, as well as our understanding 
of baptism. So I want to ask you to be patient. Uh, This morning we're going to really get at the meat and potatoes of Genesis 17, and we're going to have to wait until next week, until we come back, to understand its application and its significance to the Christian life. I want to start by reviewing to make sure you are seeing the big picture of this narrative. So have your Bible in hand. We're going to look at chapter 17, but I want to review first and take a step back and look at the main acts of this play so far. In Genesis 12, we saw that God made a promise to Abram. He promised him land, a specific land, and he promised to make him a very great nation. In promising blessing to Abram, God intended all the nations of the earth to one day be blessed through him. And then we saw in Genesis 15 that God appeared to Abram once more. And this time, God promised Abram that he will have a son who will be his own heir. Abram's descendants, God said, will be as many as the stars in the sky. And though God's people will be sojourners in a land, a foreign land, oppressed, God promised to liberate them and to bring them into the land of promise. God then did something remarkable. He cut a covenant with Abram, promising to fulfill his promise, lest God himself be cut in two. And then we turn to Genesis 16. And in Genesis 16, we saw the story take a dive. Abram and Sarah fell short. Rather than waiting upon the Lord to fulfill his promise at the right time and in his timing, they took matters into their own hands. And as a result came tremendous strife. In fact, the strife that came to their household was so intense, it nearly divided them. Rather than waiting upon God to give an heir through Sarai, Sarai tries to force her way. And she does so with Hagar and a son with Ishmael. And while God sees Hagar in her distress... And while he rescues her, hearing her cries, and while he promises to make her offspring great as well, nevertheless, God makes it clear that it's not Ishmael. And the promise is not to come through Ishmael, but rather through Sarai's own son. So now we come to Genesis 17. Abram and Sarai have been waiting for many, many years upon the Lord, sometimes impatiently so. And now the Lord is going to speak once more. Notice that around 14 years have gone by since Abram and Sarai tried to create their own heir through Hagar. Abram is now... 99 years old, and Sarai is very old too. If 
Sarai felt like she was barren before, motivating her to force her way with an heir through Hagar. There is no question in her mind or Abram's that now it surely is impossible, impossible for her to have a child. Have you ever asked yourself the question in reading through this story, why did God wait another 14 years? Ishmael is now 13 years old. Abram, 99 years old. Why the wait? I think one reason is because God wants it to be abundantly clear. to both Abram and to Sarai, that this heir, this offspring of the covenant that he has promised is absolutely due to a miracle from God. In other words, God waits so long because he wants Abram and Sarai both to understand and to really feel totally hopeless, despairing of any reliance upon themselves so that they will depend entirely, entirely upon their covenant-making Lord for the fulfillment of His covenant promise. With years and years of waiting now behind them, God appears once more but this time to give Abram the sign of the covenant, the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. We don't have time to to explore this in detail, but it should be noted that in the past there has been some debates as to whether Genesis 17 is now a second covenant that God is making, an, an additional covenant, or whether Genesis 17 is a confirmation of the covenant that God has already made back in Genesis 15. Now, there's lots of reasons for this, but I think that Genesis 17 is a confirmation. In other words, there are not two Abrahamic covenants that we're looking at in this story, but one. The one covenant is cut by God himself with Abram in Genesis 15. And then, in this morning's text in Genesis 17, God confirms that this covenant will now have a sign, and that sign is circumcision. With that said, I want to begin looking at the passage. So look with me at verses 1 through 8, where we see that God Almighty confirms his covenant He calls Abraham to faithful obedience and he's going to change this man's name as a pledge of his promise. When God appears to Abram, how does he introduce himself? How does he introduce himself? And what instruction does he then give to Abram? What does the text say? It says that God said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I make 
that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Did you know that this is the first time in the Bible that God refers to himself with this name, God Almighty, which literally, when we, when we look at the original text, means El Shaddai. What does El Shaddai mean? El Shaddai means the mighty God. This is, this is the first occurrence of this divine name in Scripture. And what, what, is the, what is the significance of this name? Well, El Shaddai is a divine name that is going to keep popping up throughout the story with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob because it's meant to be a name that encourages them in their faith. In other words, while God's covenant promise was known by these men, nevertheless, the world that they lived in so often said otherwise. God promises to give Abram land, and he doesn't yet possess it. God promises to give him an heir that he doesn't have yet and seems too old to have anyway. God promises to make Abram's name as great and his descendants and offspring as as many as the stars in the sky, and he doesn't have one yet. So when God appears, not just to Abram, but to Isaac and to Jacob, when he appears to them, to these patriarchs, and he says, El Shaddai, he is appearing as the one who will uphold his covenant. He is appearing as the one who will keep them in his covenant. He is appearing as the one who will strengthen their faith in him. As the God of the covenant. You see, his power is exhibited in how he continues time after time after time to uphold his promises to his people. And so he can come to Abram and say, God Almighty now speaks to you, Abram. This Almighty God has promised Abram and Sarai an heir, and through Sarai's impotent womb, El Shaddai is all-powerful. That is what we are going to see in the story ahead of us. And here at the beginning of Genesis 17, we already see God making reference to it. But God has instructions for Abram too. He commands Abram to walk before the Lord and to be blameless much like Noah was. In the Old Testament, that phrase, walk before me, it's a very important phrase and one you're going to hear repeated throughout Scripture. When the Old Testament refers to God walking before something, it means that God is guiding and protecting and providing for that person. He is that person's shield 
As God told Abram in Genesis 15.1 that he would be. But what about, what about when the Old Testament says that man is to walk before God? What does that mean? It means that man walks in front of others as God's own representative. It means that in walking before God, one is an emissary for God, a diplomatic representative. And that is exactly what Abram is to be. Isn't this what Abram was to be for the nations? And isn't this what he so struggled to do? In light of Abram's previous sins and shortcomings, is this command not relevant? As we saw in Genesis 16, Abram struggled to wait upon God and to trust in God's timing. At times, Abram even failed to depend upon God, and he instead took matters into his own hands, as we do so often. Trying to produce, in, in Genesis, trying to produce an heir, but, but one through his own doing. The result was nothing but conflict and strife, disappointment. And on top of this, Abram, he's been at times, well, a bad example to the nations around him. Up to this point, he has struggled to even be honest and faithful, which was evident when he started to hide his identity from Pharaoh in Genesis 13, rushing into relations with Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant in Genesis 16. And as we'll discover in the chapters ahead, this pattern is going to be repeated by Abram and his sons. So when God appears to Abram in Genesis 17, and he commands Abram to walk before him and tells him, Abram, be blameless before me. He is telling Abram to represent God to the nations around him. If he is to be a blessing and a light to the nations, if his descendants are to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, then he must walk before the Lord representing El Shaddai to the whole world. And in order to do that correctly, Abram must be blameless. He must be one who is set apart to the Lord full of covenant fidelity and integrity so that the nations look to Abram and they marvel at the God he has entered into covenant with. In verse 3, Abram does the only thing a sinner can do and perhaps should do when God appears and speaks. He drops to the ground and he falls on his face, humbling himself before the Lord. And then God reiterates his promises to Abram, telling him that he will be the father of a multitude of nations, making him exceedingly fruitful. 
And as a pledge of God's promise, what is it that God gives to Abram? He gives him a new name. He says, Abram, your, your name is no longer Abram. It is now Abraham. You see, Abram means exalted father. Fittingly so, as this man is the patriarch. But now his name is to be Abraham. Do you know what Abraham means? It means father of a multitude of nations. As the father of a multitude of nations, God explains what this entails in verse 6. Look there with me. Again, notice the blessings that are promised. Abram will be exceedingly fruitful. He will be made into nations. Kings shall come from his line. And on top of this, this covenant is not a temporary thing, but it's eternal. For in verse 7, the Lord says his covenant is not just with Abraham, but with all of his offspring. And last, we cannot forget the promise of land. When God delivers his people from Egypt, he will give them a land of promise, the land of Canaan. And here we learn that this is to be an everlasting possession. Did you notice how at the end of verse 8, God finishes off these promises. He repeats once more and he says, I will be their God. I will be their God, Abram. This is an indicator to us, the reader, that the covenant God has established cuts and is now confirming is one in which he enters into a relationship with his people. This is no boring, dry, impersonal contract. Do you you see this? This is an everlasting, binding, personal, saving, and living oath that is made between El Shaddai and the offspring of Abraham, and one that must be accompanied by a sign and a seal, which brings us to verses 9 9 through 14. God Almighty institutes the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. Throughout the Bible... God's covenants are typically accompanied by signs. The sign that sealed God's covenants with Noah was what? A bow in the sky. The sign that sealed God's covenant with Israel at Sinai will be the Sabbath, rest. In Genesis 17, the sign of God's covenant with Abram is male circumcision. Now, for us in the 21st century, this is wild, right? Unheard of, isn't it? Circumcision? Really? Why in the world 
Would God make circumcision the sign of his covenant with Abraham? And in what way does circumcision signify this covenant? Now, those are good questions. In order to answer them, it's going to require that you put on some theological thinking caps and chew on some theology at this point. In order to understand the answer to this question, we need to look back at the text again. So look with me at verses 9 and 10. First off, verses 9 and 10 demonstrate that Abram and his descendants have a part to play in the covenant. Earlier we saw that God commanded Abraham to walk before him and to be blameless. Here in verse 9, Abraham is now told he must keep the covenant. And not only him, but all of his offspring after him. It is because of stipulations like these that I think it's misguided to label covenants throughout the Bible either unconditional or conditional, as if we always have to choose between those two options. Certainly we see aspects of each in the covenants. Now, I want to be really clear here, so, so listen to me for a minute. God is the one who cuts the covenant. We saw that in Genesis 15. And he is the one, remember, who walked between those pieces not Abram. In, in other words, he is the one who ensures the covenant will be upheld. He is the one who guarantees that it will be fulfilled and it will be kept. So there is an unconditional, unilateral aspect here by God. At the same time, God often will then hold man responsible for his end of the covenant. And this is seen here in Genesis 17. So there is here a conditional aspect that's present as well. While God guarantees that both of his covenant partners will be faithful, nevertheless, Notice what happens here in Genesis 17. He still requires obedience. He still requires faithfulness on the part of Abraham and on the part of his offspring if blessing is to reach the nations. Isn't this true of our Christian life? God is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has bestowed grace upon us apart from anything we have done. And in doing so, he now calls us as regenerate, born-again believers to what? Obedience. Obedience that's necessary to persevere and to finish the race before us. What is Abraham's end of this covenant? Well, we can say in part circumcision. 
He and his descendants are to be circumcised. And in verse 11, it says that this will be a sign of the covenant between God and Abram's offspring. After every child is born, after every male child is born, he shall be circumcised, God says, on the eighth day. That said, we come back to our original question. How does circumcision, out of all things, how does circumcision here signify the covenant with Abraham? The clue comes to us in a very severe warning in verse 14. Look at verse 14. God warns any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is not this is not something that Abram is to take lightly, is it? There's two ways, I think, that circumcision signifies the covenant God has made. First, to put it negatively, circumcision visibly pictures the curse of the covenant. Should it be broken, ignored, neglected, or disobeyed? If you remember back to Genesis 15, we learn that God walking through the severed, bloody animal pieces was a way of God himself taking the oath that should he fail to uphold the covenant, he would become like these dead, cut into animal carcasses. Do you remember that? In Genesis 17, the act of circumcision threatened the cutting off of Abram and his offspring should they abandon their relationship with God. Circumcision was a very graphic and painful picture of the curse that was to take place should Israel reject their Lord as their God. God doesn't take disobedience lightly, does he? After all, this is the most personal relationship possible between man and God. A covenant has been made. A marriage has started. To break that covenant, to sever that marriage, to take it lightly, or to just ignore it or neglect it, as Abraham, as Moses did, and God almost struck him down on the way to Egypt if it wasn't for his wife stepping in. To even neglect it will have serious consequences. So circumcision symbolizes being cut off from the covenant family of God because of sin, disloyalty, and a failure to walk before the Lord and be blameless. But there's a second aspect to circumcision that shouldn't be lost. Positively, circumcision also symbolizes Israel being set apart Devoted to God as priests. Yes, priests. The covenant sign of circumcision was attached to Abraham's role as a priest who would 
in some way bless the nations. In the ancient times of the Bible, other cultures also practiced circumcision as an initiation rite for priests. For example, in Egypt, the king priest was considered the son of the God, and he would be consecrated, how? Through circumcision. In Israel, it was Israel who was the firstborn son of Yahweh. How often in Scripture, in the Old Testament, God will refer to Israel as his son, right? But not just a son. Also priests. Here's the key difference between Israel and the nations around them. While in Egypt, the Egyptian priests alone were required to be circumcised, in Israel, every male was to be circumcised, conveying to the world that all of Abraham's family, all of his descendants were priests before God. If you don't believe me, listen to a passage like Exodus 19. This is one of the reasons in Exodus 19 that Israel is called what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's people were to be set apart They were to be consecrated as those who belonged to God. Circumcision was the sign that reminded every male Israelite who was representing the rest of the Israelites of his priestly duty before God. It was a reminder that God's nation was to be a kingdom of priests from birth, devoted to God, set apart and consecrated. Which brings us to Sarah. In verses 15 through 22, we see that God's plan is not only for Abram to receive a new name, but, to, but for Sarai also to receive a new name as a pledge that the promised offspring would come through her own body. So I want you to, to hold on to what we just discussed about circumcision for a moment, because we're going to return to it in a second. And I want to look here at verses 15 through 22 and what happens next. Abraham was not the only one who had a name change. In verse 15, God tells Abraham that Sarai's name will now be Sarah. This name change, it serves as a pledge. A pledge made by God of the promised offspring God promises to bring through this woman's dead, lifeless womb. In verse 16, God tells Abraham that he will bless Sarah and give Abram a son through her. In fact, he, this blessing is something that's only going to be seen when one day the nations come from Sarah, including kings. What is is Abraham's response to this news? Well, Abraham falls on his face once more, but this time he's laughing. He's laughing. Abraham knows 
He knows, how just, he knows not only how, how old he is, but he knows just how old his wife is too. She cannot be a mother. She is an, an old woman past the age of bearing children. This is impossible. I think it may be too strong to say that Abraham is mocking God, mostly because of his obedience later on. Instead, I think Abraham is laughing just out of shock and unbelief. How can this be? He sees how old they are, and his doubt makes him laugh at how such a thing can even be possible. Shall Sarah, he says, who is 90 years old, bear a child? God? You can sense, can't you? You can sense Abram's doubt not only in his laughter, but in his solution to the problem. I mean, at this point, it may have been wise for Abraham just to shut up. (laughs) To put his face on the ground and to be quiet. After all, God is speaking, right? But Abram decides to say something. You see, once more, Abraham... He struggles, as we so often do, to see with eyes of faith rather than pure sight. So instead of believing that God can do this miracle, he puts forth Ishmael as the son God is to bless. And what does God do in response? No, Abraham. No. God rejects Ishmael. For he is the son of Hagar, not Sarah. He is not the offspring God promised. While God will bless Hagar's offspring through Ishmael, making a great nation out of him, as we saw in Genesis 16, it's through Isaac that the covenant will continue to be fulfilled. And such a covenant, says God in verse 19, will be an everlasting covenant since it's not only with Isaac, but with all of his offspring too. Once again, we see that the fulfillment of the covenant is not something that's going to come, as we so often think. It's not something that's going to come through our own ingenuity. It's not something that's going to come through Abraham's own insistence on his own way, or Sarah's for that matter. Instead, it's going to come through God, who is El Shaddai. God will perform the miracle. He will be be the one who will bring life out of a dead womb, an aged woman, and his covenant promises will continue as Abraham's offspring become as many as the stars in the sky. When El Shaddai speaks, the proper response is faith, people. Faith. 
faith that results in obedience. Which brings us to verses 23 through 27, where Abraham trusts in God's covenant promises, which is evidenced by his obedience to circumcise his whole house. The story of Abraham is a roller coaster, isn't it? He is a man who trusts in God's covenant promise, and he's one, as we saw in Genesis 15, who's counted righteous. And yet at the same time, he's a man who struggles to believe. Even at times, Abraham even wavers in his loyalty to God by his actions. We see this in Genesis 17. Previously, Abraham, he's laughing before God. He can't believe that this could possibly be true. I mean, maybe previously he understood, okay, God is real. God is going to fulfill his covenant promises. But then we come to Genesis 17, and he's laughing because he, he realizes it's going to be through Sarah's womb? This is the means that it's going to happen? But then this same man, this same man, having heard God's promise once again, faithfully obeys the Lord. Is this not remarkable? In verses 23 through 27, Abraham's faith in God, even if it be a faith that needed much maturing, Abraham's faith in God is demonstrated when he simply obeys God. He obeys God's command. And he circumcises his his whole household. People, this isn't going to be the last time Abraham is going to be tested as to whether he's going to obey God, is it? There are going to be even greater tests to come, one involving his own son Isaac. In verse 14, God warned Abraham that anyone who remains uncircumcised will be what? Cut off from the people. In other words, this is very, this is, this language here is as strong as it gets. The person is to to be excommunicated and executed. Why? Why such a serious consequence? Because he has broken the covenant. And to break the covenant is to reject God himself. Abraham understood this. He understood who was speaking to him. And so he and all of his people 
would be marked by this sign, a sign that would signify that their hearts were circumcised to the Lord too. And that they, as a people, would be set apart, consecrated, and devoted to God like no other people on earth. And that they would be the recipients of God's blessing and that through them, this blessing would reach the nations. While the rest of the world in Scripture so often speaks of of it in this derogatory sense, while the rest of the world would be unclean, uncircumcised, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When we return next week and look at Genesis 17 again and the sign of circumcision, we're going to do so with an eye to the rest of Scripture. We will see that though this sign of circumcision was critical, critical to Israel's faithfulness, to the covenant, because of their sinful hearts, what was really needed was a circumcision of the heart. Something God, through his prophets, would promise to perform on all of his people with the coming of the new covenant. For now, until we return next week, I want you to see, just for a second, as I close, what God requires of his people, including us. Yes, it is God who cuts the covenant, and yes, it is God who confirms it with a covenant sign. But what is to be the response of his people? Is it not faithful obedience? Does God not require a life that is sanctified? Devoted to him, set apart, blameless? And are we, are we not to walk before the Lord as those who have been united to Christ through the blood of the new covenant? I want to close this morning. And I want you to go home And return next week with these passages in mind. Genesis 17. And I want to read to you Colossians 2. Once again, we read it earlier. I want to close with this passage as we lead into next week. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you also were circumcised. This is talking about you, new covenant believer. 
you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in Genesis 17 that we could chew on. We pray that as we come back next week and look at this passage once again with an eye to the New Testament, to passages like Colossians 2 and others, Lord, that we would understand the significance of a circumcision not made with hands, but a circumcision that you yourself have performed on our hearts. Through Christ Jesus, who has been nailed to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.